0: Post-modern and post-Christian are both terms that the church seriously needs to
1: retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live it's by It's almost status. like raising up a white flag and saying, Ah, oh, it's all the secular people's fault and so no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic.
0: How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church Podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey everyone, it is Pastor Marcus here. Welcome back to the Story Church Podcast. I am excited to be here again. Uh, And and I'll tell you guys why. For those of you who are just listening to this week by week as the episodes come out, uh, you don't get to see the background stuff that's going on. (laughs) Um, But the, the reality is that Nicole and I, Uh, We do not record these episodes week by week. We actually sat down ahead of time and recorded a number of episodes in a go. And then we were scheduled a week after to record another number of episodes um, and that's when the mayhem started. <laughs> I think that that might be a, a little theatrical, but um, I'll, I'll let Nicole share a little bit more about their journey with COVID nineteen. <laughs> um, but uh, there was a, so essentially there was a, a few weeks with the coughing and all that stuff going on, and it, we just had to postpone. And then the, then there was a week where I had to get tested as well. So it's just been a little bit of back and forth, and uh, we're both just really excited that um, we can get back together today to finish recording these episodes for you guys. And um, yeah, I, I'm just going to uh, hand it over to Nicole. How how are you doing? I mean, like I said, it's been a pretty crazy <laughs> last few weeks. Um, yeah, share with us how, how things are going.
1: Well, fortunately, our family came through COVID pretty smoothly, but it did leave me coughing for a few weeks. So it's just been one of those things we had to navigate and we've had a lot of just intense stuff going on plus just teaching classes at the university it's keeping me really busy and then um our daughter that we adopted from ukraine three years ago is of course you know we're very caught up in the turmoil there so that's what's going on right now as we're recording this session i'm just i'm grateful for god's protection over all of our friends in ukraine so far but my heart is heavy for what's going on there
0: yeah Hopefully yeah absolutely within a few
1: weeks this will be resolved we'll see
0: that is that is definitely the uh the prayer i suppose you know um i have to say i'm just i don't know if this is just coming from you know so you know like being a, a former um former military or maybe it's just a, a, a natural human reaction to everything but I, i'm just like in awe of the the courage and the tenacity and resilience of uh of of the people of ukraine right now i've been seeing videos from you know different people in their churches or in their homes praying or i saw a video today of a family that was celebrating sabbath and his family celebrating sabbath in in a in a bunker or a basement somewhere um and of course you're hearing the stories of all these You know, regular citizens just yeah, it's just incredible, you know, I I really, really pray that this comes to a a speedy, speedy conclusion, a speedy end so that there's there's no more suffering. But I'm just, yeah, I'm blown away by, by, by their resilience. It's, it's really admirable. Um,
1: yeah, definitely. I mean, of course, as we're recording right now, the war has just been going on for a few days there. But um, you're just, you know, I have a friend who's an Adventist doctor who was running a clinic in Kiev. And every time we were over there for our adoption process, we stayed there. Just wonderful, wonderful people. Um, he yeah. managed to flee Cube yesterday and he said along the road there, he found a huge box of apples and water every four hundred meters or so. People were just leaving things for the refugees because that's what Ukrainian people do. So they were putting things up everywhere to take care of refugees.
0: Wow. Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. Well, our our, our thoughts, our thoughts and and, and prayers will will continue with them. And also, you know, if anyone is listening to this. This, this might actually be released, you know, by the time this series is released, we hope that the tensions have subsided, but the rebuilding and the suffering and the needs are going to continue for a very long time. Um, I know that Adra has a chapter in the Ukraine, and uh, there's also a, a Adventist hospital in the Ukraine. Um, so there's going to be different opportunities for us to not just think and pray over them, but also to provide uh, tangible assistance. So um, yeah, make sure you check out Adra. I'll add some some links to the show notes as well. Uh, because like I said, even even if the conflict has ended by the time these episodes release, people are going to be in need of support and, and assistance for a really long time as they rebuild and, you know, um, yeah, re, re, rebuild their lives and their, their communities, etc. So um, yeah, uh, wow. Well, we are now going to switch gears into this huge discussion that we have been having nicole on headship theology in the adventist church we had we've had some incredible incredible conversation over that already (laughs) um and and what i want to do is just hit it just a little bit deeper um and explore some other angles of this but before we do that all right before we revisit or return to that conversation. Um, in case those of you listening didn't know, Nicole is actually a published author uh, with a number of books, not just one. There's actually a number of them, and uh, they are absolutely incredible. Nicole, I just i just want to talk to us a little bit about the books that you've written, uh, what they are, who they're for, and and where we can get them.
1: Well, thank you. Yes, um, I have written six of a seven-part series that I'm writing on the story of the Exodus, and I honestly, I never thought adults would listen to me, so um, I never wrote before. It was my dream ever since I was five years old to be a writer, but um, a few years ago, I took a sanctuary class from Andrews University, and as the assignment, one of the assignments was Um, I was to write something for young people on the sanctuary. And I said, well, that's a no brainer. I'm homeschooling my three kids at the time. So I wrote a story about the children of Joshua and Caleb going through um, the the wilderness and experiencing the sanctuary message. I wanted to undermine some of the perfectionistic um, emphases that have crept into sanctuary message because the thing is, the sanctuary message is just incredible. It's the foundation of how we understand redemption. Um, and it was meant to be an experience. We have all these lists of verses and charts and things like that. But it was meant to be something you you would have sensory. You know, you see the light over at the sanctuary. You hear the ram's horn. You touch the lamb, You smell the incense. It was supposed to be something where people could actually experience the gospel. So I wrote that for the children experiencing the gospel. And um, in the end, I shared it with a couple of friends, and they decided, they said, man, you've got to publish this and push me to. So I published a book. And um, then my professor, Dr. Moscala at Andrews, said, you really should write a whole series on all the different feasts because this one focused on Day of Atonement as the, as the highlight. And so I thought, oh, I could never do that. And then I thought, well, maybe I could do one on Passover. So I started writing one more book and it ended up being four on their time in Egypt. So the this um, series so far, actually, I have the four books on their time in Egypt. So it's Joshua and Caleb's children experiencing the plagues, the Passover, and then leaving Egypt in the fifth book and crossing the Red Sea, I'm focused especially on the character of God. How, Why a God of love would allow suffering? Why does he allow them to be in slavery? And what does he do to deliver them from it? So it's, it's a story that is really well-researched. Um, everything that I write, I send to Dr. Davidson, the uh, Exodus expert up at Andrews, and he goes through it with a fine tooth comb and makes sure everything's perfect. No, the water was this deep at this place in the Red Sea. It took this long for this many people to cross. Um, and, you know, Pharaoh didn't have, I mean, all the other soldiers didn't have um, armor. Only Pharaoh would have had armor on. All the others would have like a leather strap across the front of them or something like that. There are no streams in this area. Just every detail has to be right. So um, it's a lot of fun. And um, we're going to have something accurate on the Exodus. And by the time I finish the next book, which will be at Sinai, I will have all 28 fundamental beliefs woven into the series, along with a picture of the character of God, how he loved the Egyptians, how he showed love to the Hebrews, how he showed love toward the Canaanites, too, as he's trying to reach everyone else through the Hebrews, not dumping them and choosing Hebrews, but choosing Hebrews to reach the rest of the world. It's, it's really a picture of what God wanted to do if it weren't for us being so stubborn and unwilling.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I actually recently wrote um, a series on on the nature of the church. And uh, as part of that, I had to go back into the, the nation of Israel and the, and the interplay between the Israel and the new Israel. And one of the things that really stuck out at me as I was studying, this was, you know, God didn't choose. um, how, How did I, I don't remember exactly how I worded it, but it's, it's not so, I think it was something along these lines. It's not so much that God chose Israel from the world as he chose them for the world you know and 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 there's a there's this, there's a tendency uh, to think oh you know god separated them from the world to be this sort of unique people and he did but he didn't do it so that there would be this exclusive community he did it so that through this special people the rest of the world could be invited into the covenant, you know? Um, so yeah, anyways, we could go down that. That's a, oh man, that's an exciting topic. But um, you know, one of the things I love about what you're doing with these books, they're simple, they're exciting, they're story format. Um, so they're not like, you know, dry theology. They're, they're narrative storylines and kids enjoy them and, and and grownups can enjoy them as well. And the thing that I love about it is that you are weaving through these stories the core elements of of what Adventism as a theological system is, weaving them naturally into the storyline, to to offer the next generation a healthy picture of God, uh, as opposed to toxic or as you mentioned perfectionistic um, things that have sort of crept in over the years and really turned our theology into something quite ugly. And so you're actually combating this while just having fun and telling stories. I just think that that is. Absolutely. Brilliant. Uh, When you started working on the books, was that a goal? Was it like, okay, I'm going to give the next generation this healthy picture of God as I write these books? Or did it just emerge as you were writing them?
1: Well, you know, I only thought I was going to write a story for my kids initially with the first book. But when it became a number one bestseller on Amazon within 24 hours, and it was the number one bestseller of new releases in its category throughout the whole month that it was a new release, I started realizing, well, maybe, maybe there is a demand for this. Um, and and then so many adults were telling me they were learning so much from reading just the sanctuary book. And I'm like, well, yeah, because that's the whole seminary class I put in there, <laughs> all the best stuff that I'd learned in seminary. And then um, I just realized, you know, coming from a background of abuse, I really struggled with the character of God. Why does a God of love allow suffering? How does he resolve it? And so that's woven throughout the books. I know that kids in our day, every one of them has to answer the question, why does a God of love allow suffering? And that's really what I'm focused on how does god show his love and the great controversy theme of how you know why does god allow evil in order to prevent evil in the long run so that the universe can finally be purged of evil so it's a it's a great passion of mine the tales of the exodus that's the name of the series um the first book is totally about faith roots it's why does god allow suffering how can I trust him in the midst of it? Before the plagues even started, you know, why is God allowing them to be in slavery, to allow for her to beat them, take away the straw, all of those things? Then the second book is where I really tackle headship theology, humble stones. In that one, I talk about the self-sacrifice of God, how he empties himself and goes to the lowest place. And I talk some about headship of the home too for men, because, you know, I mean. <laughs> Of course, I'm having Joshua and Caleb and Moses explain to their children these things. So I have to kind of go, well, what would they have been aware of and understood even living in a patriarchal society? But, you know, the principles of humility and servanthood and headship and leadership in the family and the home, I I think those are timeless. Mm -hmm. And God teaches them to anybody who really seeks him with their whole heart. And Moses definitely being the meekest man who ever lived must have understood a lot about what was wrong with a patriarchal hard-nosed i am top dog kind of approach to leadership so that book covers the first three plagues humble stones and then the third book wings of love is where i really talk about justice and mercy how does god balance justice and mercy and um you you have to build on you know if i can trust god's love and i believe that he, Leads the universe in humility, everything good comes out of that. So, Wings of Love covers the next four plagues, and then Joseph's Bones covers the last three plagues and focuses on forgiveness and reconciliation. How do you let go? How do you forgive the Egyptians and even work for the salvation of their firstborn sons, even as they persecute you? Then, Desert Glory is the one that I just got published in December of 2021, and that one is as they go out of Egypt cross the Red Sea get manna learn about complaining you know parents want to teach their kids about some of these things but I'm, the books are full of lessons for adults too um, i know at least one women's bible study group that's going through it and i know a couple of churches were using them as a children's story like a continued children's story reading one chapter every week i'm just wanting something that every child and adult can walk away from learning profound lessons about the character of God, how he is a God of love, how we can trust him to always take the lowest place. And this is the theme. God always only ever uses his power in loving, self-sacrificing ways. He will always do what's best for the rest of the universe, not just put himself first. And that's why the universe is safe, because the one with unlimited power will always use it in self-sacrifice. So I've got one more book to write, which will probably be called mountain grace or something like that, which will cover Sinai. And then I'll have the whole series, but now it's books one through five and book seven (laughs) that
0: are written. Wow. 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 That, that is awesome. And I'm going to come back to some of those things you mentioned, because that's some of some of that stuff is what we're going to explore. Uh, I continue to explore and dig a little bit deeper into um, in this series. I just want to ask, okay. Um, in the show notes and in the links, when this series is released, people, you can go there to storychurchproject.com, look up the latest Potter and series. You'll have a link there under the storychurchproject.com slash podcast. There'll be a link there where you can find direct links to all of Nicole Parker's books. But maybe you are just like sort of listening to this on your phone and you're like, I'm just ready to go right now. They can hop on Amazon. I know that much um and and do they just look up nicole parker and it'll show all your books or what's the easiest way to find them
1: if you look up tales of the exodus t-a-l-e-s um that should have all of them should come up you may have to scroll down a little because amazon doesn't advertise them right at the top sometimes but those are all the faith roots humble stones wings of love joseph's Bones. And Desert Glory, then Sanctuary Light is the last book in the series. So they'll say on the spines: one, two, three, four, five, and seven.
0: Cool, cool. Yeah, we are six on the way.
1: <laughs> six on the way. As soon as I can get it done.
0: That's it. That's it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. Um, definitely, highly recommend them. You guys, uh, really incredible stuff. You get to experience some profound theology in a really accessible way. And I think that's absolutely key. Like I wrote a book on the sanctuary. Like I love the sanctuary. I'm a sanctuary nerd. Like I absolutely love what the sanctuary, when when you bring the sanctuary to the theological conversation, what it offers, the panorama. Oh man, um, this is not a podcast series on the sanctuary. So let me control myself a little bit and pump the brakes. But it's absolutely incredible. And I actually wrote a book um, titled uh, The Death and Rebirth of the Investigative Judgment. Because of like how incredibly passionate I am about the sanctuary and the theme of judgment and how it sort of like all interlaces and intertwines, Um, but I have to I have to say this, guys, my books just dry theology. All right, like if you want like like really accessible, exciting storyline format, something that is not just like you know abstract, but you can actually see it through the story in people's lives emerging and, and, and and in real time. Um, definitely get Nicole's books. It's an incredible way to to teach this to your kids that they're not going to forget You know, by the time the study's over because it was all dry theology, like what Pastor Marcus writes. So, okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I know a bunch of kids binge read. I had a kid telling me the other day that she had read through Desert Glory, which was just released a couple months ago already four times. And I'm like... Yeah, and we even do that. But I, I do have at the end of each chapter, I, I have questions because I want families to be able to go through them in family worship, if that's what they decide, and like discuss the, the deeper themes. What's actually going on here? Not just plow through the story, you know, going, I can't wait. I got to turn another page because we've got to suck the juice out of these things. They're incredible, these concepts of the character of God, and they will transform everything else in our lives. One of my favorite reviews on Amazon is where a woman said, I started reading these books just to my daughter, but as a victim of abuse, they have brought me so much healing. Wow! Um, And that's what I want. I want people to see a vision of the character of God that gives answers to why he allows suffering and how he resolves it, how we can forgive, how we can heal, how the, the worst things that happen to us can become the things that convince us most thoroughly of his love.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well. On that note, Nicole, let's jump in um, to to this conversation. Now, it's been roughly about a month since Nicole and I have been able to get together to continue this discussion. So I'm just going to do a quick recap. Those of you who've been listening to this week by week might think the recap is overkill, but Nicole and I need it. So you're going to have to just bear with us here. Um, So we started an episode, uh, or at the very beginning, uh, is probably an easier way of framing it by talking about like, what is headship theology? Um, Is it in the Bible? Is it found in Ellen White's writings? And uh, long story short, no, it's it's not found in Ellen White's writings, it's not found in Adventist history, it's, it's not found in scripture. Um, but what exactly is it, right? And so uh, I'm just going to read a few notes that I wrote here so I don't um, blabber on for too long. But this is what I recall from our conversation, Nicole. So um, we, we talked about headship as this theological system that imagines God as a hierarchy of power where the father is at the top and the son is eternally submitted to the father. Um, and so what happens then is that within this system, when God creates the world or he creates humanity, he creates us based on that same hierarchical dynamic. And so if God has this hierarchy where the father's at the top and the son and spirit are like submitted to him, when he created humanity, he created it where the male would be at the top and the woman would be eternally submitted to the man and and this is this is a theological system right this is it attempts to justify this idea of patriarchy patriarchal control and power structures by picturing god the same way and then saying hey he made us in his image and you know he's a hierarchy we're a hierarchy um now as i mentioned this theology doesn't exist in SDA history it, it didn't exist in Ellen White's writings and it actually wasn't popularized in the Adventist church until it was specifically Samuel Bakiyoki, who was kind of on a desperate search to find a theological framework uh, for the justification of rejecting women's ordination, that, that he sort of found this idea in extreme Calvinist circles, and then he brought it into Adventism. And surprisingly, few people resisted him, <laughs> despite the fact that calvinism is almost the opposite of adventism in like almost every imaginable way (laughs) so um okay did is that like a fair summary that did i miss anything super important on like what is headship theology there
1: no i think that's a great summary and the crazy thing is adventism hadn't fallen for it back in ellen white's time i think largely because she was a woman And the church from the beginning said, "Nope, women can preach. We're not going to believe that stuff. So it was an evangelistic issue in early Adventism because people would not join the Adventist church sometimes because we allowed women to speak and to lead. Um, But then after Ellen White's death and after there was, um, you know, a, a movement of fundamentalism that took over, which is another whole story. Um, then we see women dropping off the ministry sharply, like suddenly there are no more women in ministry. And it happened within a few years in Adventism. I mean, never no more, but there were very few women in ministry, especially paid ministry where Ellen White had been saying women must be paid from the tithe. And I will withhold my tithe from the general conference and pay women with it mm. instead. I mean, she was that intense about it that that can start some pretty scary movements but she was she was on fire for this and and you know and by and large it seems like the leadership of the church was behind her up until shortly after her death so we we see in adventism a movement that started out saying black people, white people, women, in fact, um, we don't even we're, we're still finding out now some of the leaders in early Adventism who were black, that we didn't even know they were black because nobody ever bothered to write it down. Nobody wow. ever bothered to say so, because just like what had happened in Acts, there was neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, black nor white, slave nor free, um, even though there were accommodations in the church to say, hey, we've got to protect black people from violence, so we'll let them worship separately for a while. Um, but that's not God's intention long term, or that's not his plan. In the same way, unless race was an issue saving people or pr- protecting people, it seems like the early Adventist church just tried to level the ground as much as possible. Of course, when apostasy crept in and people started trying to build hierarchies, um partly because of organization and structure. I mean, we're not against organization and structure. It was necessary, it was good. But when we set up our our organizational structure, according to pecking orders and headship theology creeps in, that's when those who have what's called higher positions end up thinking they're entitled to more power and privilege. That's when we have problems. We're starting to give us a king mindset that happened back in Israel when God said don't do it don't do it whatever you do don't call this person a king because when you set up a leader that's called a king that's when we have trouble because the king is going to say what is a king let me look at the definition of a king and they'll look to all the surrounding nations and go oh I get the best food I get whatever I want I should live in a nice palace I should be able to have access to lots of women. And even though over and over, God tried to undermine what would inevitably happen when we get a kingship mindset, what happened with Saul, you know, God takes the humblest guy hiding out among the baggage. But sure enough, you call him a king and he starts getting entitled. David, a shepherd who has to live for years running from a power hungry king in order for him to learn the deadly nature of thinking you're entitled to power once you're a king. Still, he becomes a king and eventually it goes to his head as well. Even with Solomon, who was the wisest, you know, it, when we get a mindset of kingship, thinking that whoever has power is entitled to privilege, that's when we have trouble. And that's yeah. what crept into the early Adventist movement, especially after Ellen White's death regarding dealing with women and race issues and some things like that. So we see this movement that came up in early adventism um you know I mean as an evangelistic issue initially and yet they pushed back pushed back pushed back unlike the surrounding churches but now we've actually gone back to becoming like the churches that initially we were standing against and saying no 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 we are going to let our women teach we are going to let our women preach um yeah we slid downward and yeah. polygamy slavery patriarchy they all have the same thing in common dehumanization objectification entitlement of of those who have power yeah to, to being able to have privilege yeah
0: and and i think this is where in 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 response to that picture of god uh, in the paper that we were we were exploring, where, where you wrote about uh, you know the headship theology and, and that issue, like the, perhaps the most eye opening, beautiful, just riveting part of it is is and this is what, the second thing that we discussed was headship theology as it relates to the Trinity. That when we look at Scripture through 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 its own lens, right through the Gospel, what we find is that the Trinity is an eternal community of love seeking to serve one another, not control or dominate. So within the Trinity, within the nature of the Godhead, there is no thirst and hunger for control and domination. There is only this rhythm of servanthood, where each member of the Godhead is constantly seeking the lowest place in service to the others. And and I think that this is perhaps the the Rosetta Stone, if I can use that um, analogy of how we understand the nature of God and his relationship to the universe and governance, and then how then we should understand what leadership is and what headship is in and of itself. And, and this is one of the points you make in your paper, that if we are going to attest that headship is a biblical idea then we have to define a headship the way God would define it, not the way human uh, hierarchical empire structure would define it. And the way we see it constantly depicted in scripture is that if God is the head of the universe, he constantly takes the lowest place of servanthood and nurture and care for the universe. He doesn't sit up at the top of some throne and just demand and and um, selfishly whatever he wants, but rather it's the opposite, right? And so, if that's the case, then and and I haven't articulated that anywhere near as brilliantly as you do. So I'm about to hand this over <laughs> back over to you. But but if that's the case, then headship would mean if I w- if I'm going to apply headship to my life, what that would mean is if I'm going to do headship the way God does it then this means I would then seek the lowest place. I would seek the place of servanthood, the place of nurture, the place of care for others, not the highest place where I have control and power and domination. And everyone just has to, you know, like do what I say or my wife has to do what I say or my kids, but rather it's the upside down kingdom that Jesus is always proclaiming, right? Like everything about God is upside down to the way we humans structure stuff. Anyways, let me stop. Um, Did, did I... Did I articulate that even moderately okay?
1: <laughs> Brilliantly. See, the thing awesome. is, Jesus was continually hammering the disciples with, Guys, the kingdom is the opposite of the way the Romans do it. And they were like, Hmm, I wonder what that means. So, anyway, let's go back to trying to sit on the right and left hand of the throne. And Jesus, is like, Guys, the kingdom is the opposite of the way the Jews paint it. You're not supposed to be trying to be the head of all the nations over everybody. And they're like, Hmm, wonder what that means. Anyway, so who's going to be, a? Uh, when are you going to get to the throne and how can we conquer the Romans and how soon can we get this thing going? And Jesus is like, guys, no guys, all the way up to walk into Jerusalem. And they stand back. They walk literally behind Jesus because they're like, we don't want him to hear. We know what he's going to say if he hears us talking again about the right and left hand. <laughs> and then Jesus is like, so guys, what were you talking about on the road? And they're like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I mean, it's comical. It's just like my kids fighting over who gets the last cookie, kind of thing. They just could not get it because this kingship mentality is woven into the very fabric of sin. And God wants to get rid of it. Theological perspectives that undermine creation always dehumanize. And that's why it's so shocking that as a church that literally celebrates creation every week on the seventh day, how can we, of all people, keep forgetting the creation order that God created Adam and Eve? in his image and said guys you are supposed to have a relationship like what we have here in the trinity now some people will argue about so is the father at the head at the top and you know you can make a the- theological argument either way i don't think it really matters when you understand what headship really is like i mean some you know i can say well maybe the father takes the lowest place even more than jesus Uh, you know, because when he and Jesus decide who's going to go to the cross, Jesus says, I'm going to do that. Um, if I had to choose between me going to the cross and my son going to the cross, no question, I would rather die. So, so the father takes the hardest place, if anything, in staying at home in heaven and withdrawing his glory so that Jesus feels alone on the cross it would be the hardest place to be the one who has to pretend like they're not there. I mean, not pretend maybe isn't the right word, but you know what I mean? Yeah, to let yeah. Jesus feel alone. That was the hardest place. Potentially. I don't tend to think that there is like a, a beginning point. If you want to say where the father has to be the first one to seek the lowest place, but if there is, or isn't um, you know, in the end, it doesn't matter because whoever has the most power takes the lowest place mm. in this kind of theology. Yeah, and this is exactly what Lucifer went after when he came to Eve and said, you shall be as gods; you guys can exalt yourselves and have the throne yourselves. You can be as equal; you can be equal to God." Which was obviously him trying to tempt her with what had tempted him. He wanted to be like the Most High in power but not in character, as we talked about before. And any, any church that believes in creation and redemption and celebrates it literally one day out of a week should never fall for this junk yeah, of, yeah. of pecking order and thinking, well, God keeps the best for himself. The father was able to tell the son, go down there and die. Like, that's just preposterous.
0: Mm.
1: Um, it, we see after the disciples get it, You know, in Acts 1, after the cross, they finally understand and they make everything right between themselves. They pray, they surrender, they repent. They come into one accord, which could only have happened when they let go of that thirst for power and trying to get the top positions. But Acts 1 prepares the way for Acts 2, and that means this is missional. It's intensely connected to whether we can take the gospel to the world and have thousands converted in a day. Can we let go of that kingship theology? This is not a side issue. It is arguably everything. It's whether we believe in the truly loving self-sacrificing character of God in a way that will duplicate it in us. so when when Ellen White says, when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, he will come to claim them as his own, This is not an empty promise. This is a promise that the fruits of the spirit will be manifest. And the gifts of the spirit will be used to take the gospel to the world. And when will it happen? When the people of God as a community live out the law of God, you can't become perfect. You know, when a lot of people get all upset about this, when the character of God is perfectly reproduced in his people, but the answer is very simple here. When the character of God is reproduced in his people, that, that can't be a one person at a time thing because the character of God is communal. So the church must reproduce the character of God as a community, people who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbors as themselves. You can't do that by yourself. So it's not each person who's perfectly doing what they're supposed to do. It's the group of people, the church, the people of God who come to love him so much that they love one another as themselves, which is the opposite of the kingship model.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And and I love that you're saying that because when we understand perfection, and I know that perfection isn't like our, our key theme here, um, but perfection, the doctrine of perfection can be understood through a fundamentalist behaviorist lens, which has been the tendency in our church for a really long time to frame perfection as a sort of like behavioral uh, sort of, you know, fundamentalist angle and then like you add eurocentrism to that as well where it's like perfection means you look like this and you dress like this and you sing like this and you talk like this and it's all eurocentric standards you know like yeah like that's nonsense But when scripture talks about perfection, like I love the way Jesus, you know, he's talking about how the father loves not only those who loves him, but he loves his enemies, he sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, like, he doesn't just love the people who say, I love you, he loves even the people who are against him. And it's immediately after that, that Jesus says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, like, he's calling us to love like he loves And when, when we understand it, this is the way the Wesleyan movement has always understood perfection, right? Ellen White didn't make that idea up. It comes from Wesleyan theology, the idea of the perfection of Christian character. It's John Wesley has an entire book called, you know, the doctrine of the perfection of Christian character that he wrote way before Ellen White. So people think Ellen White made that stuff up. She didn't. Um, And it was always about love. That's what it was about. It was about being a people who love like Jesus loves, who embrace others like Jesus embraces them. And I love what you're saying here because what you're saying is on a practical level, what this looks like, reflecting the character of Jesus, reflecting the character of God, is letting go. Of this endless struggle to organize ourselves into pecking orders where i'm at the top and everyone else is underneath me right and and this system this structure so long as it's active in our church whether theologically through theological assumptions like headship or practically through the the way we structure and organize ourselves is always going to impede us from really reflecting this love that Jesus wants us to reflect, you know? Um, So I I think that's absolutely incredible. And it was one of the parts in your paper that just really blew my mind the most. Like, I just absolutely loved this concept where you spoke about, you know, a people, a humanity, right? Because that's essentially what, you know, Jesus is like this new kind of human right like he's he's a human who's never existed before um you can't compare him to adam and you can't obviously can't compare him to anyone after adam he's just this unique human and he becomes this is so deep in paul's theology he becomes the head of this new species this new humanity that looks like him and it's like i remember one day i was reading the gospels and i thought well we don't remember Jesus because he didn't eat pork. We remember him because he fed the poor, you know, like, and we don't remember him because he didn't sleep around. We remember him because in a society that put women at the bottom, he elevated them, you know? So it's like, it's the character of Jesus. Isn't defined by the behavioral moral scripts that he adhered to it's, it's, it's defined and it shines in just a radical love, That he lived out these rhythms and these postures and, you know, it's just radical love, you know, and it's like, that's what God is wanting to reproduce in his people. And for me, it was like the first time in my life where I was like, because perfectionism almost like I was really like I had to go to therapy like it it was really bad, you know, like it really almost drove my mental health to complete, like decay. Um, But when I saw that lens, I was like, hey. Yes, uh, you can sign me up for that. Like, that is cool. I want to love like Jesus loves. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, let me let me, let me me just fast forward here a little bit so that we can get on to some of the new topics as well, because we're still in summary here. <laughs> We've been summarizing for forever. Um, but from from this idea of headship theology um, or, or the character of God seeking the lowest plates, et cetera, we talked about the creation and the fall. And, and we, we dealt with a lot of like bits and pieces there on like, you know, uh, at the fall, you know, where God tells, you know, Eve, you, you know, or you, your husband will rule over you. And we talked about that a little bit and, um, we're going to talk about it a little bit more today. Um, but again, once you have, and this is kind of the point you were making is like, once you have an understanding of what actual headship is, that it's servant leadership, it changes the entire conversation everything changes one of the tragedies yeah one of the tragedies of the way we've debated this as a denomination up to this point is that we we don't have that framework we're debating it in terms of hierarchy and power and we're seeing it through that lens and it's like i don't care how many bible verses you amass for whatever part of the equation you're arguing for so long as that framework is operational we're never going to resolve this Right. So long as this hierarchy is in place.
1: The very way that the theology of ordination study committee was formed, essentially, when you look at it, they were 50% for 50% against women's ordination. They were going to go into this um, as sides. And some of the people who were on the sides were not well-informed. They weren't theologians. They had not studied Greek or Hebrew or anything like that. And, and, They were picked largely because they were such strong anti-women's ordination proponents. And as a result, they hardly even talked about the actual theology of ordination. That's what they were supposed to be studying. Instead, it was, okay, well, ordination is ordination. Now let's get to the juicy stuff. Talk about women. But that wasn't the way it was. If they had done their work, which I know many of those godly people tried to do, If they had focused on the theology of ordination itself, we could have undermined this kingship mentality. Instead, we ended up with a third way that sort of said, "Okay, well, Israel said, give us a king. But what they actually, you know, you know, God allowed them to. So it's okay for us to allow women to be in ministry, even though it's, you know, it's maybe not God's first plan. I'm like, no, 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 no. To give us a king mentality is what we're doing right now. Mm. We're still doing a form of now we're going to have a big ceremony to ordain you because you're going into a higher position, and now we're going to call you elder. And yeah, we we never fixed it. We're still doing the kingship model. Now I'm I'm not against the church. We we have an organization. It's a good and godly thing, and we need that. Um, but I think we've made a fundamental mistake by saying, let's keep the kingship model and just try to make it work. Yeah. When yeah. we should have abolished that. I, women's ordination itself is not, how do I say this? It's not that big a de- deal. We could find half a dozen different ways to resolve this, you know, commission everybody, ordain everybody, um, find a whole new terminology to deal with this, start ordaining. Teachers and doctors and nurses and everybody else, you know, realized that what was going on in the New Testament was really just having a communal prayer likely to send out missionaries. It sounds like the whole church may have gathered and put their hands on two missionaries, send them out with prayer kind of thing. This was, this was not what we've made it into. We've copied the Catholic system. It's not necessarily evil, but if we put that kingship mentality the pecking order of no this guy is a president we we tend to use the terms that lend people to go well you know presidents and companies and presidents and other things I think we just needed to shift the whole conversation and maybe it'll take a cross kind of experience to actually purge it out of us just like it did with the apostles but I hope we don't have to go through a crucifixion type crisis as a church to come to the point where we realize actually nobody ought to be fighting for those positions and if everybody is not being paid by five maybe we stop fighting and just start <laughs> working
0: together.
1: I don't know I don't know what it's going to take yeah. but it needs to be different the conversation needs yeah. to be different when yeah. when we see what Paul did Paul commended women in ministry he told men to love their wives in a way that was shocking to people so we read the verses we say oh it says Paul's Paul says, husbands love your wives, but wives submit to your husbands. And that's the part we debate about. But in the culture he was writing to, they would have gone, yeah, wives submit to your husbands. why do Husbands have to love their wives. You know, women were were, you know, traded like goats. They were
0: mm.
1: they were not considered to be equal to men in any way. Mm. Um, Beth Barr in The Making of Biblical Womanhood explains that Aristotle wrote in Generation of Animals. The female is, as it were, a deformed male. They thought that everybody was supposed to be male, but some babies didn't have enough heat inside of them to expel their private parts. And so those ended up being females, which I suppose was somewhat useful because at least then they could bear babies. But the ideal person, the whole person was a male and women were just inferior in every way by nature of their birth. Whereas when we go back to creation order, We see that male and female created them. Paul's point was to show that men and women were both made in the image of God. And he says, you know, husbands are, he never commands husbands to have authority of their wives. He said, love your wife and treat her as an equal. Even when he says that husbands are the head, it's the word that means source, like the source of a river. So he's talking about Adam was born first and then Eve. That's why Adam is the source in the Garden of Eden. But even then, uh, it's not like Adam is over Eve. And Ellen White is very clear about this, that in the Garden of Eden, neither of them was to be over the other one. Hmm. Even her discussion of what happens at the fall, it's kind of nuanced, but it acknowledges that because of sin, it was going to end up almost inevitable that men are going to you know they're going to be more powerful physically men are more powerful in a tribal society for thousands of years men were going to be the ones that were fighting and the ones who would generally have power but both husbands and wives in ephesians are supposed to offer sacrificial love both of them are supposed to submit paul is urging men to use their privileges of power to serve and lift up their wives in ephesians 5 and 23 Essentially, Paul is trying to bring them back to creation order and say, you know, here here we are as Adventists saying, shouldn't we go back to the Eden diet? Shouldn't we, as much as possible, go back to keeping Sabbath? Sabbath is the day we go back to Eden as much as possible. We don't have to work. We're just supposed to praise God and spend quality time with Him and with one another. And yet, when it comes to marriage, we're like, no, 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 no. Do you want to send us back to the Eden mentality? That's not God's plan
0: it doesn't make sense <laughs> yeah I've I've always struggled with that the, the, the dissonance um, between that you know as you mentioned hey yeah let's go back to the Eden diet but when it comes to the relationship between men and women yeah we're not going to go back to Eden and in, in fact we're going to retain the post-fall model and we're going to fight for it tooth and nail right <laughs> it's just like Wait a minute! Aren't we supposed to be the king, the here but not yet here kingdom? You know, like living out the rhythms of this new civilization in Christ, where there is no male, female, slave, free. You know, it's just it's a dissonance that I've never understood. Um, But but you know one of the things
1: that out too, Beth Barr actually says, and I'm probably paraphrasing, but why do we keep fighting to make Christianity look like the world instead of fighting to make it look like Jesus? Because Mm. Jesus said. To Paul, you know, there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Christianity is revolutionary in this way that it levels the ground in a society that was profoundly hierarchical, profoundly layered. The males and the Romans versus the slaves and the women, you know, everybody's got their place in the pecking order and you dare not step out of that. Whereas Christianity just leveled the playing field. Paul writes the household codes addressing not just the men, he addresses everybody in the church. And that all by itself is huge, that the Christian household codes don't focus on telling women to submit, they focus Mm -hmm. on telling men to love, they focus on they speak to children and to slaves, rather than just ignoring them and saying, guys, keep your children, your women and your slaves under your control. Next topic, it talks to women. It talks mm-hmm. to children. It talks to slaves. It treats each person as though they're an independent moral being who can make choices.
0: That's right. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the interesting things about uh, Paul's writing as well is that I, I've always, I've always struggled with this idea uh you know, of of submission that the women are expected to submit and, um, sort of in a mono-dimensional way or a monodirectional way that there's one party submitting. Uh, Simply because Paul says, you know, he says, wives submit to your husbands, but then he says, husbands, love your wives. But it's more than that. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it's like the last time I checked, when you give yourself up you're submitting right Like so (laughs) like that's the whole idea like you're giving you know so it's like it's clear that this is a mutual submission that's at play here you know and and that's just a fancy way of saying it's non-hierarchical right there's no pecking order of who's got the most coercive tyrannical sort of power it's not a thing um, so I, I and I guess that's where I wanted to land as we go into some of our new content was on the the relationship of headship theology and El, let me get a little bit closer to my mic I'm a bit far but the relationship between headship theology and marriage I, if I recall correctly I know it's been about a month uh, in our conversation one of the final points that we were making toward the end when we when we first chatted was that um, in your experience you have found that headship theology. Is complicit, if not the cause, um, or at least causal, in domestic violence in the church, and that wherever you have seen domestic violence uh, within the church, within a within a Christian marriage, you always find headship theology. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of let let's take off from there, and there's a few new angles we'll go into, but I wanted to take off from there because I know that there was quite a bit that you've. Um, read since you wrote the paper um, that we were citing uh, that you've also read and learned since then through Beth Allenson's work. So yeah, just wanted to maybe, yeah, jump into that, that theme yeah. and then take off from there. Yeah.
1: I've, I've spent so much time in the last few years since I wrote that paper, um, exploring and, and working with abuse situations, largely because of, you know, having to be sucked into dealing with some powerful abusers within the church. And when, when the church leaders weren't willing to stand up to them, I was like, come on guys, right is right. You know, this guy is a rapist. How do you let him just go back sliding into power? It's wrong, you know? So that uh, ended up kind of launching me to a, a more public sphere accidentally as the wicked woman who was trying to keep a godly man who had just messed up a little out of power and as a result, I just got a cascade of abuse reports. People just started reporting to me all the time about abuse situations within the church, and, um, which is still a huge problem for me to even keep up. I've got people messaging me every week. And how am I supposed to keep up with all this and homeschool kids and teach classes and write books? You know, I don't have time. We've got to do better as a church. And this is one of the reasons why I've realized we have to handle headship theology. We can't just keep on letting this slide and say, well, I'll just be a woman in ministry. And so I don't get tithes. The Lord will provide for me somehow. And he always has, you know, ever since God called me to ministry, he's never left me starving. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. But the way we're doing this is wrong because God said, put women into ministry and pay them from the tithe. Why are we not doing it? Um, hierarchy, as Beth Barr says, gives birth to patriarchy, and patriarchy gives birth to the abuse of both sex and power. Um, Even some of the leading complementarians like John Piper are admitting, look, complementarianism does have a high likelihood of being associated with abuse. Beth Barr is more explicit. She says, we can no longer deny a link between complementarianism and abuse. Ideas that depict women as less than men influence men to treat women as less than men. And so, you know, she's she says, I propose we stop fighting to make Christianity look like the world around us and start fighting to make it look like the world God inspired Paul to show us was possible. Because this historical reality, social systems invest some people with power over the lives of others, that inevitably always results in the destruction of people complementarianism is about power it's about hierarchy it's in it is always it always leads to a power struggle where somebody believes they're entitled to have power over the other person so as Beth Barr said complementarianism is patriarchy and patriarchy is about power neither have ever been about Jesus So I I think when you actually are active in abuse circles, you see it so clearly. And I can tell you so many heartbreaking stories of complementarianism um, being lived out as functionally when this woman is under the power of this man, nobody will protect her. All the men go, well, you know, okay, so he does some things he shouldn't, but he's still the head of that home and he apologized and. We keep it going. Now, Adventism is not historically as bad as some of the other churches, but there are many churches where they outright will, you know, when the woman goes to the pastor and says, hey, I'm being abused, he'll go as far as to say, well, if you die because of submitting to your husband, then, you know, you'll go straight to heaven kind of thing. But God isn't calling us to commit suicide. Why would we tell people to do that? Why would we do something that so profoundly misrepresents the character of God to the children in that family as well as to the wife? Um, you know, and I, I used to go out canvassing, selling books door to door. So many times I met pastors' kids or other kids who had grown up in Christian communities who said, "I will have nothing to do with Christianity." Reason why? Very simple. Their mothers were abused. And the church turned a blind eye, allowed their fathers to continue. Now, I'm not saying women don't abuse men. They do also. But complementarianism teaches that God has placed men over women and children. And so if a guy messes up a little, he can rationalize anything. And just like slave masters, as I think we talked about before, if you're a slave master and you believe that God has given you the right to be over these slaves, you can rationalize anything you do. Because, well, you know, they're supposed to submit. I'm teaching them to submit. Maybe they'll learn to submit to God this way. It's evil and it's wrong. And it goes in direct violation of creation order, where God created male and female together to reflect his character.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I think perhaps the best, oh, I don't want to use the word best, (laughs) Um, perhaps a clear, that's better. A clear example of how twisted and dark and just toxic. I don't know. I can't even find the right word for it. Um, example of this in the church today um, was in the news since we last spoke, and this was the the situation with uh, Pastor Bronx Pastor Burdette Robinson, um, and uh, in his sermon a sermon that he preached uh, where he was preaching on wives submitting to husbands. And uh, for those who haven't seen it, you can just Google it because this was all over the news. I mean, secular news media picked up on this one really fast because in his sermon, he essentially begins to explain a story where he saw a woman who accused her husband of raping her and which which is a thing marital rape is a thing um but according to this pastor who happens to have been a seventh day adventist that that was the part that broke my heart the most i was like if this was like one of those other like crazy denominations they're out there you know i'm like okay i mean it's horrible but i've heard it all but this was like an adventist minister um who's like basically mocking the idea of marital rape that it's not possible because you know the woman is basically the man's property. She has to submit to the man. And um and then he goes so far as to say, husbands, the best person to rape is your wife, you know, and wow. I mean, it's just, oh my goodness, you know, um it's
1: unreal this, and yet such a reality.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And 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 you know, for a lot of people it was like the immediate reaction was, you know, I mean, if if someone and and it, it, I think for me the saddest part is that you hear the audience laughing, and it's like, what kind of like culture has been created here where that is even and like, if you make the defense and say, oh, he was he was just being he was just joking and he pushed it too far, it's like. I don't know. There's some jokes that are just like, dude, not okay. You know what I mean? Like not going to laugh at that because it's not cool. And we have to chat about it. Don't care what your motivation was, but yeah, it was just like, for me, just a clear,
1: he wasn't even even joking Mm. and he's doubled down, you know, the the conference after um, his release kind of issued this, well, he says he's sorry, but then he's off blasting on somebody else's broadcast not too long after saying he's absolutely not sorry. And he's not. Mm. and his theology has told him he has nothing to be sorry for this is the reason why we have to stand up against bad theology because we always live out our theology if i Mm. believe that god is like this i will live it out and and when my theology tells me that abuse is fine of course i'm going to keep doing it and i wish i could think that that guy was an aberration you know wow what a horrific situation that one guy but thankfully adventism isn't like that but over and over i've counseled in situations where it's very similar and sadly most of the time church leaders side with the pastor there are a lot of reasons for that um i can do a whole seminar on it but it still blows my mind that when a woman comes forward and says my husband's been raping me even when she says i've got doctor's records um, I've called the police, I've had an examination which shows brutal wounds and scarring and proof that my husband has been doing this to me for years, the pastor still, in some cases, and I i know of multiple ones, I'm not making this up, will go, well, um, I don't want to see the medical records, I don't want to know about it. And we're just going to accept him in the community. If he wants to come to church, then he can come to church. We're not going to stop him from being around you and the kids. You're just going to have to deal with it. Have you thought about forgiveness? Uh, Until until it's the pastor's daughter,
0: it seems,
1: or granddaughter we turn a blind eye to abuse and these things should not be happening i understand that they're happening out there in the world where people have lesser visions of the character of god and calvinistic mentalities and things like that i understand their theology that's the best they can do maybe but ours ought to expect better
0: so sorry to have to wrap things up right there guys we've been going for about an hour so this looks like a good place to pause Just for this week, remember there's another episode coming next week, so make sure you keep tuning back in so you can hear the conclusion of my conversation with Nicole. We're going to get into things like spiritual gifts, and uh, ultimately the plane is going to land on the Airport of Mission. We're going to talk about how this idea Damages our ability to do mission, not only in the ideological sense because of the abusive picture of God that it paints to the world, but also in the practical sense because of the deep need that we have for women in ministry. So uh, make sure you tune back in, guys, and if you have any questions, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, just go ahead and send them to either myself or Nicole. You can find her contact details on the resources page for this podcast series, which you can find at thestorychurchproject.com/slash podcast you just click the button that says episode six resources right underneath the saying no to headship theology um episodes and it'll take you straight there you can find nicole's pages and and you can also find her books guys you got to check out her books kids absolutely love her books families absolutely love her books and best of all is they teach our next generation a really healthy picture of god which is just absolutely amazing it's so essential so needed for our movement and for our mission all right guys once again that's it for today but i will catch you next week take care and god bless